Nu am oțoane mari? Plenty more where that came from, but I'm not going to do it for you today on the stage. Well, it's good to see you all, and um, I'm really excited to come and share with you from this particular passage this morning in Luke. Um, better find my page. The video above was taken after uh, Tracy and I and Eva went with my parents to the ballet last year. And uh, it was actually a really big deal um, for, for Eva, particularly. She'd started taking ballet lessons. And when we went to, I think, the AOT Centre, uh, we had some really good seats, you know, up in the, uh, the balcony, uh, right at the edge near the, near the front of the balcony. And about halfway through, Eva started getting so into it that she decided she was going to do some of her ballet moves in the small sort of section in front of us with about, I don't know, four or 500 people behind us. Um, it was quite difficult because, you know, it was a dance performance, of course, but um, there's still, still, it's not like a concert, you know, where people are jumping around and dancing. Uh, so trying to restrain our then four-year-old um, you know, from, uh, you know, from joining in was, was uh, quite challenging. Um, and she didn't give up for, for about uh, half of uh, that show, for half of the, uh, the performance. She was trying to get out of her seat and do, I don't know, what are they called, pirouettes and all kinds of um, ballet moves. But she gets it from me. That's the, uh, that's the truth of it. Uh, she gets that love of dancing anyhow, anywhere from me. She's completely unashamed. She is not self-conscious about dancing whatsoever. Um, and that's, that's me as well. Um, in fact, when I was at university, before I met, met Tracy, long before I met Tracy, uh, I was at some uni ball dance thing, and uh, I danced so hard that night. I didn't have a dance partner, uh, probably just actually one of my mates, but um, I, I danced so hard that night, so passionately, that I, I got uh, this award called the Silver Pineapple, which um, was literally just a pineapple they bought from the fruit shop and they spray painted it silver. <laughs> I was very proud of that. In fact, it's one of, probably one of my greatest achievements, that award, um, because dancing means a lot to me. I have no formal training or even informal training. Um, I'm completely spontaneous, I make it up on the spot, um, and it's worked for me. Probably not for anyone else, but it's worked for me. When Tracy and I were first dating, um, we went to my cousin's wedding down in Hawke's Bay. And it was the first kind of big uh, event, like family event, that uh, I, I took Tracy along to. And, you know, it's, it's hard enough when you're introducing someone that you know, you're pretty keen on and you think you're going you're gonna to probably marry at some point. It's really hard introducing them to all your, your extended family, your, your relatives and and you're waiting for some kind of um, feedback, response from everybody, that's hard enough. But it doesn't help when you make it even more difficult for yourself by dancing like an idiot at the wedding. My brother and I, actually my brother's kind of got into this as well, he loves to dance, uh, make it up on the spot as well, and he goes hard as well. So the two of us are dancing 
middle of the dance floor at this wedding. And I think that was the moment where I first wondered whether Tracy might, uh, you know, break up with me. Um, she told me so afterwards that she was seriously considering it. Uh, if I ever did that again, uh, that was it. It was going to be over. But I've, um, I've taken some consolation from the story of David, King David, in Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, when the Ark of the, uh, the Covenant was being returned to Israel after having been in sort of Philist, uh, Philistine's uh, possession for many years, David kind of leads this procession. He's so thrilled that the Ark is returning, and he dances wearing only an ephod. Now, it's quite hard to describe an ephod, because even today it's, it's a little bit unclear what it, exactly what it looked like, but it was a piece of sort of linen clothing that was typically worn by a priest. The trouble for David's wife, Michal, was that he wasn't wearing any other clothes other than the ephod. Um, and he didn't care about that either. He was dancing and he was going for it. Um, and she basically sort of threatened to leave him as well. Um, but it didn't work out so well for her. So that, that's a bit of a warning, ladies, if you do um, object to your husband's dancing. We better get into the passage. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. I'm going to read through it, and then I'm going to give you a quick kind of uh, paraphrasing of this story. So Luke 7, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he cancelled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did, you did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. The story sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's because it's um, very similar to two other stories we read in the Gospels. Uh, one in Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. The other is in John, 
12, verses 1 to 11 also. And uh, they're similar stories, and uh, they're so similar that some liberal theologians have suggested that they are actually the same story, but kind of recalled or uh, told in, in different ways. Um, that somehow probably people, their memories were wrong and, and, and they saw it differently, they remembered it differently many years later. And the, you know, the, the gospel uh, records these in different ways. Um, the trouble, of course, is that that is taking the view that the Bible um, is not correct. That, in fact, Scripture uh, is not inerrant and that it is full of inconsistencies and you know, contradictions. I don't believe that. I don't start with that presupposition. And I think there are a number of very good reasons why also we don't need to assume that this is a story that was remembered three different ways. So they're similar, but they're not the same. And I'll let you do this uh, in your own time, perhaps later on if you want. You can go and read those two other stories and, and see for yourself why these different uh, accounts are in fact different events. They just happen to have a few things in common. I don't want to spend too much time looking at why uh, these stories are different events in their own right, because um, I, I think of this quote here by J.S. Mill, misrepresentation is always beautifully brief, refutation always tediously long. I don't want to use up all my time trying to show you why liberal theologians um, are wrong in maintaining that uh, it's actually the same story told three different ways. I think it's three different stories, and um, I, I didn't come up with that uh, idea, first of all. Um, many uh, good biblical scholars have came, come to that conclusion first. But I will say a couple of things, and they're important because they help us in terms of our understanding of this particular passage in Luke 7 this morning. There are some considerable differences. I really can't read that, so I'm going to have to read it off here. Uh, Luke places the story in the north of Israel during the early period of Jesus' ministry. Mark and John place their stories in the south of Israel much later, specifically during the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. So first of all, there's a clear difference in terms of the time and the place when it comes to setting. Another thing to point out is that um, the story in Luke explains that the woman's sinful reputation is the particular point of contention for those present in the house. So people like Simon who object to her presence, first of all, and then her behavior, that is the, the key point that the gospel writer, Luke in this case, is making. This is the issue here in the story. Mark and John make no mention of the woman's reputation, instead highlight the hypocrisy of Judas and the objection he and others made that the woman's act was frivolous and financially wasteful. And I would maintain that the story in Mark and John, or the two stories there, are not the same event either, retold you know, in two different ways, but rather they're actually two separate events that just happen to have a lot in common. We'll go through that a little bit later on uh, as well. Now, one of the really important things to note here is, well, I suppose the question to ask is, 
why do we need to have these stories that uh, liberal theologians in particular can say or point at and say, um, you know, why the need for this kind of confusion? Surely they could have kind of harmonized their accounts or just decided that one of these stories was enough. You know, one story would have been enough and would have made a point about Jesus and grace and, you know, and being a sinner and that doesn't stop us from coming to him and so on. Why couldn't we just have one, one story? Surely that would be enough. But each story is unique in its own right when you look closely. And starting with Luke 7, I want to examine why. They're not the same, and it's not a complicated or unnecessarily complicated editorial decision on the part of the, uh, the, the gospel writers and God himself. They, they're all there for a good reason. So, let's look at the context. Jesus is clearly not what the Pharisees and the experts in the law were expecting. We see this in Luke 7, a little bit earlier in the chapter, in verse 30. There's a great deal of disappointment amongst those who had spent a lifetime, or at least a career, waiting for something like this to happen, for someone calling themselves well, at least uh, acting in such a way that they might be the Messiah. But as he, as he get, really gets into his ministry and he begins to do more and more and say more and more, they really have their doubts. In fact, even John the Baptist, whose sole purpose in life was to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, even he had doubts at a particular moment. And he sent two of his his own disciples, to Jesus to ask him, are you actually the one that we're supposed to be expecting? Because you're doing some stuff that's a little, I don't know, atypical. It's a little bit out of the uh, ordinary. Even the Old Testament um, you know, accounts, I don't know, they, they didn't quite mention the, 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 the type of thing you'd be doing right now, at least not in this way. We, we imagined it differently. So that's the context. There are also some interesting things that you know, we've got to consider in the passage itself. So what are the implications um, in this passage? There are little hints. Uh, the woman is regarded, or she's, sorry, she's known as a, uh, a woman who had lived a sinful life. And so this may be a clue that she was a prostitute. Now, that could be a leap, you're saying. Um, but if you think about it in, in you know, modern times, or at least in, in recent history, there are certain terms that we would use to describe someone uh, that was a prostitute or someone who had um, you know, very kind of loose morals, and we would say they're a person of ill repute or some such thing. This is probably the ancient's way of saying that she was immoral in this sense, that she had either been a prostitute or that she was a... Um, an adulteress or something of the sort. But thankfully Luke doesn't actually need to go into detail. He just wants to make the point, it seems, that she was a lost cause, that she needed help and she knew it. What exactly is she doing in the story? Well, she turns up uninvited. Um, she's a party crasher. 
she definitely would not have been on the list of guests that Simon, this Pharisee, would have invited. In fact, she would have been at the very bottom of any list he was composing. She wouldn't even have made it on the list. Um, This was somebody who was absolutely on the outside. Absolutely uh, on the outside, on the fringes of her society. Uh, Just like in John 4 with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And so, this woman is not invited, and what she does when she turns up unannounced is even more shocking. I mean, I've had lots of people come to things that I've run, um, you know, parties and that type of thing. They weren't invited. I've, I try to be good about it. Um, you know, the more the merrier, I say. But when it's somebody who is so different, they, they do things so differently to you, uh, they have completely different, uh, a completely, di- completely different outlook on life, and they behave in a way that you find completely unacceptable. It's difficult to smile as they walk in the door and you know, they say, oh, by the way, I brought the salad that I made, or uh, you know, whatever. Um, so it's a big, big shock that this woman turns up. And what she does is even more shocking. And yet we realize as she's doing it, as we're reading the story, that she is there because she's committing an act of service, of adoration, of worship. It is fundamentally an act of repentance. And what does that mean then? What does it mean to repent? Um, She's also kissing his feet as a sign of worship or submission. That would have been... That would have been very difficult to watch if you were a Pharisee, knowing her backstory. And I think they're sitting there, Simon included, and, and they're sitting there and they're thinking to themselves, he clearly doesn't know who she is. I mean, it's unseemly for a woman to come and kiss a man's feet like that anyway. Um, I don't even think that husbands in those days would have expected that from their wives. So, so to have a, a woman come in like this and kiss this teacher's feet after having you know, wept all over his feet and used her own hair to dry them. To, to, to kiss his feet and then pour this expensive perfume all over him. This is, this is unheard of. This is unseemly. This is, um, this is terrible behavior in their eyes. And I think there's a number of things that we've got to consider. Repentance is an act of relief. This woman hasn't come to do something that's kind of, um, you know, in her eyes, awkward or, or overly, um, uh, you know, emotional. It, it kind of almost has these romantic connotations to it, doesn't it? And that maybe that's what these guys sitting there criticizing Jesus uh, and this woman are thinking, you know, Ooh, this is a bit borderline, isn't it? Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not appropriate for a woman to be doing this, um, you know, to a man, especially a man of his, his stature, of his, uh, his reputation. But what's, what's fascinating is Jesus' response. When you look down in... Um, In verse uh, 41, Jesus says, 
Two men owed money to a certain moneylender, one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Um, when you see the uh, point that Jesus is making here, that no one, neither of these two, the one that owed 500 and the one that owed 50, neither of them could re ever repay the debt. This is a huge clue as to the, as to the, uh, the meaning behind the story, I think. Neither of, them could, neither of them could repay the debt. The one who owed an incredible amount of money, so well over a year's worth of wages, was in the same boat as the one who owed 50, which is a bit over a month's wages, perhaps a month and a half's uh, wages in those days. To lose out on an entire year, year and a half's income and catch up, that's pretty hard. But in those days, it was much harder than it is today. We don't have the, they didn't have the easy finance options that we can often access today. Um, to catch up perhaps on a month and a half, that might be possible um, these days. But certainly back then, it was pretty hard as well. But Jesus is saying neither of them could repay. So it didn't matter how much was owed. It didn't, didn't matter how much uh, you know, you'd done wrong. Jesus is saying you're in the same category. So this woman might have been a sinful woman. All people were sinful. All people are sinful. But she was known as the sinful woman. So they're really trying to put an exclamation mark behind, behind that point. But she's in the same category. She's just as lost. She's just as in debt. She's just as hopeless as anyone else, including Simon and his Pharisee friends. Repentance is an act of relief. Why, though, if repentance is not just, you know, feeling terrible, as we often probably think it, that's, what, that, that's what it means, it's not just about kind of feeling guilty and thinking, oh gosh, I've got this weighing on my conscience, so I ought to say something about it to God. Repentance is far more than that. In fact, the concept of repentance is absolutely life-changing by definition. And if you think about John the Baptist, he had a, a ministry um, of repentance. He was looking to get Israel to repent in preparation for Jesus' life ministry message, his death, resurrection on the cross. But why did Jesus need to get baptized? Jesus didn't have to repent of anything. He never did anything wrong. He wasn't a sinful man. He wasn't like this woman. He wasn't like anyone else on earth. He never did, any throng, never did anything wrong. Um, he had no reason to repent as we understand it. He had no guilt to apologize for, to be ashamed about. And yet Jesus says to John, when John sort of objects and says, no, don't come up here and get baptized. You know, you should be baptizing me. Jesus says, no, I've got to do it to fulfill my mission on earth. What was he saying then? And why did God say, you know, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased? 
as he came up out of the water. Well, Jesus wasn't sinful, and maybe some liberal theologians might try and maintain that he was just a man after all, and this is an indication that he needed to be baptized like everybody else. Well, no. No, you have to disregard everything else in the Gospels if that's the case. But we still have to you know, ask the question, why did he do it? Well, if it is, is he just simply doing it because, um, I don't know, it's symbolic? Or is he declaring in that act of baptism, where he's baptized by John, that while he may not have sinned, and he was not sinful by birth, by nature, he was opening himself up, as he had since the very beginning. He was, he was avowing or, or, or renewing that commitment that he would trust God in everything, he would open himself up to everything that his Father in Heaven had waiting for him, that he would provide everything he needed as he went about his ministry, just as he had prior uh, to his ministry in those 30 years of his life. So repentance is, is about relief. Too often we think, I need to go and grovel. I need to, I need to crawl, I don't know, up 10,000 you know, steps, um, you know, kissing each step as I go, uh, and making my way up to the sort of high place where God is residing. And I, mean, I like the idea of going on a pilgrimage because I like traveling. Um, but I, 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 I realize these days as I, as I get to know God better and better that I don't have to go on some long journey where I'm being purified or cleansed by, by an act of um, kind of struggle. I don't have to go on that in order to understand the full inheritance, the full blessing that I have received in Jesus Christ. So when I repent, when I get stuff wrong, I'm not doing it simply to kind of alleviate this, this bad conscience I have. In fact, I would say that you could even repent without specifically thinking of the stuff that you've got wrong recently. You will have got stuff wrong recently, but repentance can, in fact, just be you saying, God, I know I've stuffed up somewhere, sometime, over the last few minutes, hours, days. You know better than me. But I'm prepared to simply accept your help. I'm relieved that you offer that help. And I want you to do that in me. I want you to get on and work in me. So Jesus was without sin, but he wanted to show us what it meant to open ourselves up in a, in a spirit of repentance, you could, you could say. To be totally open and trusting. Ian Thomas, a um, great Bible teacher who uh, I got to meet a few times in his, um, in his later years, once said this, Real repentance is hilariously exciting. It is facing the facts of life, recognizing how God made you, how you were intended to function, and then being restored to that relationship of mutual interavailability that the Lord Jesus enjoyed between himself and the Father. A mutual interavailability in which you are prepared to let him be God. That is true repentance. A lot of people struggle these days with the idea of repentance. 
lot of people struggle with the idea that they should feel bad about stuff that they've done. And in some respects, I can understand that because, you know, consider the fact that we were all born into sin. The Bible says we were all born into sin. We didn't have a chance. I mean, a lot of times in Sunday school, you know, you can hear kids say, but hold on, if Adam and Eve, you know, they are the ones who got it wrong. They are the, they're the ones who should be punished, really, for what's going on. Um, which is not an easy thing to answer, by the way. It's, it's quite a challenging um, theological question. But, but thankfully, God doesn't say, too bad, you know, you're guilty simply by association, even if you didn't even know them. What he's saying is, I totally understand that Adam and Eve made that first decision and that they set something in motion that you had no consciousness of, that you were completely unaware of, and you've somehow landed up in the middle of. That's not really the point so much. Because Jesus is saying, I've come to relieve you of that burden. I won't hold you responsible for stuff that you've got wrong. I won't hold you responsible for what Adam and Eve did wrong. If you simply trust me. If you simply let me in. And this woman understood that. Here she was, absolutely relieved. Probably for the first time in her life, she recognized that here was an answer to this intractable problem. Her nature the thing that she couldn't fix no matter how hard she tried, that she'd probably you know, given up on trying to fix. This way that she was, she was hardwired this way it seemed. She couldn't help herself but, but sin again and again. And every time it just got worse and the thing compounded. And here was, finally, the answer. The relief that she had always longed for but probably never imagined she would ever see. And so her repentance is real because it is joy, it is relief, it is this outpouring of emotion, the very tears that are falling from her eyes. Uh, that this is the relief that she feels. This is the, uh, the joy that she is suddenly encountering when she sees the answer to her problem, that hardwired nature that she can't escape. She sees in him a miracle worker. She sees in him the unconditional love that no one's probably ever shown her up until that point. And she can see it, but the rest of them can't. The, the trouble is, and this is, this is one of the powerful things about the story, grace can make people incredibly uncomfortable. In fact, I would say on a frequent you know, basis, true acts of grace are very difficult to watch. That is if you have a mindset that says, I'm doing pretty well, I, I suppose I, I better work a bit harder, but I'm, I'm going to save myself or I'm going to you know, earn the favor of the merit of God. If we have that approach, if we take that sort of uh, view that somehow I'm doing an okay job, and if I just carry on and tweak a few things here and there, you know, tithe a bit more or, um, I don't know, swear a little bit less or not cut people off on, you know, on the road when I'm driving to work so much, um, stuff like that. If I spend a bit, a bit more time with my kids and actually bother listening to, to what they're saying, um, you know, if I do more of that stuff, 
I'm going to be all right. You know, I'm going to feel a bit better about myself. When we watch grace, acts of grace, it can be incredibly uncomfortable. It often is unseemly. It's a shocking type of thing. Um, there's a, a novelist, a South African novelist called Alan Patton, or Patton, I don't know how you say it in South Africa, um, but uh, you know, he earned um, a pretty wide following around the world, and he wrote in one of his books um, about this, this symbolic act that took place in a church during apartheid, uh, where uh, people of various races came together and they took part in this exercise where they washed each other's feet. It was a scandal at the time. It wasn't what you did. And yet here they were violating all the norms, the taboos. There are so many stories where people show this extravagant grace to each other. And they provoke in the process. They provoke the world. They provoke people who are still working on that merit-based kind of program of redemption, where they think that they can keep God happy. Too often, though, we're trying to keep other people happy. It's not really about what God thinks. It's about whether other people think we're deserving enough, holy enough, righteous enough. It's this kind of stuff. It's when you dance and you don't care because you're just so happy to be there. You're just so happy to be in the presence of someone who loves you no matter what and who has an answer to your hardwired, inbuilt problem that no one can solve. That's the thing I love about dancing, you know, is when you can get to that point where you don't care who's in the room anymore. It usually takes a little while, though, for most of us, if we're being honest. Or, unfortunately, it can sometimes take a few drinks for some people. Um, but, but you get to that point where you're dancing and you just couldn't care less who was in the room. Have you ever heard of the whirling dervishes? Uh, I think in Sudan. These are um, people who would dance, and I think for the most part they had kind of just one dance move, but it worked really well for them, so they did it lots and lots of times over. But uh, they'd go round and round in circles, and it's, I don't know how they managed to maintain the kind of... the, 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 uh, the, the physics involved is, is pretty mind-boggling, but if you've ever, ever seen uh, images of this... They spin around on the spot, going faster and faster and faster like this. And uh, they wear clothing that kind of accentuates the, the sort of um, circular motion. And they can do this, I don't know, for a very long time, going around and around in circles. I mean, I'd probably pass out or vomit or whatever, but, but they've trained themselves to do this. And it is a way, really, of uh, blocking out everything else. It's sort of this, this um, act of you know, total immersion in, in an experience. This woman doesn't care. I don't even think she realizes anyone else is in the room. She's so intent on worshiping her creator who has turned up. See, that's the thing. Simon and the others, they see a man. They see, you know, a pretty good man, uh, a good teacher. Very unconventional, definitely. Um, but there's a lot of good things going on for him. And they're sort of disappointed. They're let down when they see him allowing this kind of carry-on from this, this sinful woman who no one wants to associate with. Because they're like, oh, it was so promising, you know. He really could have been, I mean, he may not have been the Messiah, but he could have been a fantastic prophet, you know, fantastic teacher. We would have probably, you know, appointed him, um, or at least, you know, welcomed him into our pharisaical order. 
But look what he's gone and done. He's really messed it up now. What a letdown. But she didn't see that. She saw her creator. She saw what no one else was seeing in that moment. And she didn't care what she looked like. She was going to show him that she was now devoted. With all of her being. With all that she had to offer. Perfume that would have presumably have been very, very expensive. She pours it all out. She hasn't come prepared necessarily with, with a bucket and you know, uh, a sponge or whatever to, to clean his feet, but she's going to show him. She's going to demonstrate that everything inside here is crying out for the answer that he's offering, for the solution he's providing. The third thing, I guess, that really stands out here is that repentance invites you know, his power of transformation. In John 8, you know, think of the, the story there where um, a woman caught in adultery is hauled before Jesus by these same experts in the law. And they say, look, you know, there's absolutely no disputing what she's done wrong here, so what should be done about her? It's a trap. They, want, they really want to catch Jesus out on this one. They're thinking, hopefully, you know, um, he'll be sort of very licentious and he'll say, oh, you know, let's try and find some reason to excuse her behavior or to let her off the hook. Because if, if he does that, then they're like, well, he's, you know, look at him. He's just like the Greeks who let anything go. He's not a real Hebrew. You know, he's not a real Jew. He's not a real uh, you know, follower of God like us. And if he'd played it the other way and he'd gone, well, yeah, I guess she was called an adultery and the Old Testament says she ought to be stoned to death, then, well, that's it, you know. And he'll be just like us, and then he won't really be able to say that, um, that we're wrong, and we'll be able to put him in his place. But, of course, his response is, you know, uh, enough to confound them and send them away with their tails between their legs. But Jesus doesn't, Simply at the end of that encounter with the woman in John 8, say, oh look, there's no one here. You know, good on you. Off you go. He says at the end, go now and sin no more. So there is an expectation of transformation. It isn't enough to simply say, God, I'm sorry. I'm so glad that, you know, you love me unconditionally. But we are also called to change. The trouble for someone like this woman, and the trouble for us, although we sometimes forget it, is that we haven't got the power to change within us until the Holy Spirit comes and makes his home in us. He's the, he's the, 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 the possibility of transformation if we engage him. The thing about this story is that it, it is a contagious act. That's why the, you know, the view of these liberal theologians that I mentioned at the beginning really misses the point here. When you look at the detail in the other two stories in Mark and John, you recognize that what this woman started in Luke 7, because it was, it was clearly quite a while before the other, other two events occurred, what this woman started in, in Luke 7 was a contagious act. These other women mentioned in, in Mark and John must have heard about what she'd done. And when they had their own encounter with him, they thought, what a great idea, I'm going to do the same. 
And this happens in different ways, you know, not entirely uh, sort of replicated exactly the same way as this woman does here, but it involves perfume and it involves this outpouring of perhaps grief but also joy. You know, in our house, we have to often discern between, you know, happy tears and sad tears, right? Um, there are often quite a few tears shed, uh, especially with young kids, although I'll admit that occasionally I do as well. Um, and Eva, our five-year-old, has to ask, um, are those happy tears or sad tears? More often than not, it's happy tears. You know, I get very emotional about stuff. Um, and uh, I've learnt that, you know, tears are not a weakness or a strength. But, but for her, she checks, you know, are they happy tears or sad tears? For this woman, it was probably both. Repentance for her was this acknowledgement that she'd stuffed it up. And she couldn't have, have found any other way of solving this problem, but here was a solution in front of her, and he was even better than she could have imagined. The creator of the universe was so approachable that he let her cry on his feet, wipe her tears off his feet with her hair, to kiss his feet and to pour perfume on. Presumably they'd never met before, you know, we don't know that they that it, that actually met before this moment. But it became a contagious act. And so these other women, for different reasons, do something very similar. Um, unfortunately, Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus, um, has, I think, been kind of confused uh, with this particular woman and all the kind of um, implications around, you know, what this particular woman in Luke 7 had done, being a sinful woman maybe that she was a prostitute, it's somehow then kind of been uh, transferred to Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus. And so in, in quite a few kind of traditions, this Mary becomes a prostitute redeemed by, uh, by Jesus. Well, we have no indication at all that Mary was ever a prostitute or that she was ever immoral in this way. Um, <clears throat> but she was thankful in that story, and you can have a look at it, like I said, another time, but she was thankful in that story for what had been done for her brother, her brother Lazarus, raised from the dead. So we have different reasons for coming to, to, to Jesus and, and worshipping him and, and adoring him. But fundamentally, it's always an admission that without him, we are lost, we are powerless, it is hopeless. But with him, any kind of transformation is possible. And we have to deal with this hard-hearted response. In the other two stories in Mark and John, we have Judas, who, you know, he really plays uh, an important role in those stories because we see actually over the, I think over the period of about a week, this, this increasing sort of hardening of his heart, reaching a point where he's like, I can't stand this anymore. This lavish, you know, extravagant display of, of affection for Jesus it had its roots in the fact that he was embezzling money and he was defrauding the, the disciples and Jesus because he was the treasurer and he looked after the money and he thought, well, this woman could have sold the perfume instead and we could have given it to the poor. That's what he said. Of course, he was thinking he could give it some to himself as well. But all the different motivations that, that play into it, it, it's still a hard-hearted response and that's the issue and that's what we're faced with when we understand that Jesus is here in this manner to receive us as we are expressing how, exactly how we feel. 
The guilt, yes. The shame, yes. But also the relief and the joy that he has arrived and that he offers transformation. <clears throat> the challenge, and this is the, the final side really, is when we read in John 13, Jesus ha- has, in this passage here, he's just washed the feet of his disciples. He's, he's approaching his death. It's very close now. And he says this to them, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. <clears throat> Before you all rush out and get you know, towels and foot basins and so on, we all know this does not literally mean we're going to wash each other's feet because that was a, a cultural practice. It was a, a practical thing they did in those days where you had dusty feet because you wore sandals and there were no paved roads for the most part. What does that look like though? How do we do this for each other today in the 21st century? To finish very quickly, when I was 10 years old, I experienced something over the course of a year where somebody in a position of authority, not someone related to me, but someone in a position of authority, put me through an ordeal. That no... Sorry. That no no 10-year-old should have to go through. It took me many years to reconcile what had happened with me. To reconcile that with who God planned for me to be. And I knew that while it wasn't my fault what had happened, what I'd been through, I had all kinds of feelings of insecurity and you know, questions about my identity and things like that that were very, very difficult to process. But when, when, when God finally got through to me the fact that he loved me he had a plan for me. He could transform me. He could repair the, the, the hurt, those, those things that had gone wrong in me. It absolutely uh, released me from that sense of imprisonment, that sense of once you're broken, you can't be fixed. To the point where, when I read this story now, I think, okay, that woman, you know, she had a pretty bad reputation. She was a She was a sinner, and everyone knew it. And we often read the story and have a lot of pity for her, and we think, oh, those guys are pretty mean, the way that they carried on and talked about her that way and thought those things about her. And this is the really challenging thing. What if that that woman had been someone who we really despise today? I mean, back then they despised someone like her, and that was a pretty typical societal attitude. We don't really have that attitude towards people like her anymore. In fact, when it comes to, say, prostitution or something similar, we, we really feel pity for people like that. And we say, well, there are so many reasons that, that contribute towards it and there's a reason why this happens. But what about the people that we don't typically let off the hook in our society today? I don't want to say, go into too much detail about this, but what about the people 
the kind of people like that, that person, that man, who put me through what I went through when I was 10. Do we have room for him in this story? And that was a challenge for me when I was about 18. Could I forgive him? Could I forgive that man? Could I see him the way that Jesus saw this woman? Could I, in a symbolic sense, wash his feet? I never got the opportunity to ever confront this person or to speak to them in any way. Um, They passed away a few years ago. But I do believe that grace... His grace is sufficient for anybody like that. And people have told me, you know, you have every right to uh, remain angry, to continue looking at people like that as, as subhuman. In the UK, you know, people like that guy are blacklisted, they were chased out of town. And I understand it. I do understand it. And how you deal with it in terms of your law and order, I don't know. It's not an easy issue. Like so many issues. Is there a Christian policy response? I don't know. But I know that there is a personal Christian response. And it's what we see here. I was going to close with um, another video of me dancing. Um, But I'm going to spare you that. Uh, I'm not ashamed of it. I love it. I'm going to keep doing it. When my daughter turns 21, not only is she going to see some of these videos of me dancing like that, um, but she's going to see me on the day she turns 21 dancing like that at her 21st. When she gets married, you know, same thing. I'm going to be out there on the floor, whether she likes it or not. Hopefully she'll join me, but I love the fact that with Jesus, we don't have to worry about how we're perceived. Because he sees us only one way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a very confronting story when we really get to grips with it. We thank you, Lord, that um, it's about as real as it can get. We thank you too, Lord, that your answer is the only real answer. And no matter how broken we might be, no matter how, pre- how predisposed to sin we might be. Your power is greater and your love is greater. Help us to wash the feet of others just as you have done that for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.